It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 313 for October 7th, 2012. This week, increasing internet threats annoy and alarm. A couple of related items. First, looking at the new newspaper. And second, where your news will come from, or maybe already is coming from. In short circuits, cyber attacks are swatted, but this is no time to feel safe. Microsoft settles a computer fraud case. And the Adobe flood continues. Although internet security has always been somewhat of an oxymoron, trust is increasingly being eroded by spam, phishing, malware, and now state-sponsored malware. The threats come not just from email, though. They can also arrive via Skype or other IP-based voice services, and even by phone using the plain old telephone system. Maybe you've received a phone call from somebody claiming to be from Microsoft support or from your internet service provider's support desk. You may be told that your computer is infected or that the computer is sending bad information to the server. We received one of those calls at home this week. Your computer is sending the server a serious error message, the caller told my wife. At the time of the call, all of our computers were turned off. Microsoft doesn't make calls like this. Most ISPs don't either. If you receive such a call, ask for the person's name and ID number. Then tell the caller you'll contact the support department yourself. Chances are by this time they'll already have hung up. Don't accept any phone numbers or URLs that they try to provide if they continue the call. After all, I could tell you I'm from Microsoft and give you my Skype number, and then answer, Microsoft support, this is Bill, when you call the number that I gave you. Most Skype subscribers have received fraudulent calls from an organization that plays a recorded message claiming the user's computer is infected and then provides a URL for repair. I don't understand why Skype can't find a way to shut this operation down, but apparently the challenge is too great. Even the standard fraudulent emails seem to be improving. I've illustrated one on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. It claims to come from PayPal. If you're a PayPal user, you probably know that PayPal always uses your name instead of saying, Dear PayPal User. Well, this message had my name, more or less. The fraudster used part of my email address, the part that says Bill.Blin. My name has capital letters in it, though, and no period between the names. And also, that's not the spelling that I gave PayPal, so it's still an amateurish fraud. Some years ago, I warned you, though, that relying on the presence of your name wouldn't be a good idea because the fraudsters would eventually figure it out. They're a lot closer now. Even though they're better, though, there's still a lot that tells me this is a fraud with only a cursory glance. Let's count the six ways that are obvious. First, the fraudster sent the message to an address that I don't use for PayPal. Second, as already noted, my name is wrong. Third, listen to this sentence. But we have hold it for the moment because the amount is over the security borders of our rules. Now, there's a sentence that has not been written by a native speaker of English, not even a lawyer. Fourth, this is the United States, and we place our currency symbol to the left of the number, not the right. PayPal knows this. Because the integer part of the number consists of five digits, there would be a comma. 
Number five and number six are combined. The accept button links to a site in Romania, and the decline button links to the same site in Romania. But as bad as it is, it seems the situation is about to become much worse. Google has started warning people who use Gmail or the company's Chrome browser about what it terms apparent state-sponsored attackers. Google has been displaying these messages for about three months, but lately there's been a sharp spike in attacks. And don't panic if you see one of these alerts, and chances are you won't. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Google says the warning doesn't mean that your account has been hijacked. It just means that we believe you may be a target of phishing or malware, for example, and that you should take immediate steps to secure your account. Additionally, Google says these warnings are not shown because Google's internal systems have been compromised or because of a particular attack. Google's suggested response is a multi-step process. First, create a unique password that has a good mix of capital and lowercase letters, punctuation marks, and numbers. Second, enable Google's two-step verification process. Although annoying and time-consuming, this process does strengthen your system's security. And third, update your browser, your operating system plugins, and any document editors. Google's security team warns that attackers often send links to fake sign-in pages in an attempt to steal passwords. So you need to be careful about where you sign into Google and look for HTTPS in the browser bar. That would be HTTPS accounts.google.com. Google started displaying these warning messages in June, and they surprised a lot of people when they logged into Gmail or opened the Chrome browser and saw, Warning, we believe state-sponsored attackers may be attempting to compromise your account or computer. Google Information Security Manager Mike Wysak says that state-sponsored attacks have grown dramatically in the past three months. And this week, Google began warning tens of thousands of additional users about the attacks. I said, you probably won't see one of these messages. Most people won't, because the attacks seem to be directed primarily at high-profile U.S. journalists and employees of various political think tanks. Although Wysig says there's been a spike in suspected state-sponsored activity from the Middle East, he will specify only various countries in the region, none by name. Many years ago, I subscribed to the New York Times. No delivery was available at my office, and home delivery arrived too late for me to take the paper to the office, so I read it in the evening when the articles were more than 24 hours old. In those days, the national edition closed around 6 p.m., and other editions closed throughout the evening until the morning local edition closed around 11 p.m. WQXR, the classical music station owned by the New York Times, ran a brief report at 9 p.m. with the next day's newspaper headlines. That ancient history occurred to me in September when I signed up for full Internet access to the Times online. I dropped my subscription to the New York Times because the articles were so old by the time I had a chance to sit down with the paper that they were really no longer meaningful. But I have missed the newspaper, both the national and international coverage and the New York regional coverage. Although one can easily read much of the newspaper online and the paywall isn't particularly difficult to circumvent, buying a $15 per month subscription seemed to be the right thing to do. Newspapers no longer have a single deadline. Because most newspapers offer constantly updated articles, the Internet is the perfect delivery mechanism, and newspaper journalists set the standard by which others are judged. 
Except for the few all-news radio stations, radio has essentially abdicated any claims it had to be providers of news, and local television news is essentially the eye-candy equivalent of tabloid newspapers. Even the fabled television network news operations are mere shadows of what they once were. I happen to be one of those people who leans toward agreeing with Thomas Jefferson when he said, and I quote, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. While it can never be an either-or proposition, of course, thankfully, government is essential if you want to have highways, reasonably safe food and such, but it's also important to have newspapers that employ reporters who poke their noses into government operations. This is a tough time for newspapers, though. Once, they could depend on two steady revenue streams, auto dealerships and want ads. Today, that's not the case. Most auto dealerships have moved most of their advertising to the web, and Craigslist has destroyed the newspaper want ads. As advertising shrinks, so does what the newspaper folks call the news hole, the part of the paper not occupied by ads, the part that can be filled by journalists. Whatever you pay for the newspaper that's on your doorstep every morning is only a fraction of the cost of producing the newspaper. The rest of the cost is carried by advertisers, and as newspaper advertising declines, so does the size of the newspaper. That's just one of the problems newspapers are facing. The other is that only old people like me depend on the printed newspaper for news. Take a look around your neighborhood some morning. See how many houses have a newspaper in the driveway. If you live in an area where most people are under 60, you probably won't see very many. These folks get their news via the Internet. So, newspapers need to change. The transition is hard, but I think those who survive will be profitable. If you can deliver the newspaper electronically, you eliminate printing presses, press operators, the cost of the printing press building, trucks, and the drivers who deliver newspapers to homes. Compared to the cost of journalists, newsrooms, and news-gathering operations, the delivery costs are huge. Consider as an analog the Encyclopedia Britannica. You can't buy a printed copy of the Encyclopedia anymore, but you can buy a DVD copy or subscribe to an online version. Maybe that's kind of a bad example because Wikipedia is poised to be the winner in this space, and it's free. But the cost of paying experts to prepare articles is still a fraction of the cost of printing, warehousing, shipping, and delivering printed encyclopedias. Home delivery of the New York Times costs $400 per year, and the printed version in Ohio omits sections that are considered to be of interest only to those who live in the New York region. The Internet version of the paper costs $180 per year, that's 50 cents a day, and it includes everything that's in the printed version. I can read the newspaper on my Android tablet. You'll see a screenshot of what that looks like. But does it look like a newspaper? Actually, no. It looks like a web page that lists the stories that are in the day's newspaper, along with any updates that have occurred since the paper was published. If photographs accompany the account, they are provided on the web page version of the newspaper, and the quality is probably better than I'd find in the print version of the newspaper. If newspapers could eliminate the print version entirely and immediately, they could reduce the overall cost of a subscription. I suspect that today's subscribers to the online version are, to some extent, underwriting the cost of preparing the print version of the newspaper. Which newspaper is going to be the first to say, enough, we're eliminating the print version of the newspaper? Some have gone partway down that road so far. For newspapers to survive, they'll need to be destroyed. And I say that with a nod to Peter Arnett's quote of an unnamed U.S. officer during the Vietnam War. Arnett quoted an officer who was involved in a battle at Bantre on the 7th of February, 1968. He said, 
it became necessary to destroy the town to save it. But simply put, if newspapers want to survive, they must stop printing. The web-based display differs considerably from the tablet app, and if you prefer the web version to the tablet version, you can also view the web version on your tablet. On the web, the newspaper looks more like a traditional newspaper with columns, but the page is exceptionally long. The user can then drill down into various primary sections, such as world, U.S., politics, New York, business, dealbook, and so on. And then the lesser sections, autos, blogs, books, cartoons, and the rest of those. But there's a problem. This will work for the New York Times and the Washington Post. It may work for the Chicago Tribune, might work for the Los Angeles Times. If management is smart, it could work for smaller newspapers, such as the Columbus Dispatch, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Des Moines Register. But it seems to me that newspapers such as the Belfountain Examiner, the Dayton Daily News, and the Springfield Sun are doomed, and that concerns me. The clear channelization of radio has eliminated what used to be a farm team. People who wanted to work in radio station news departments or who wanted to be disc jockeys could start at stations in small towns like Belfountain, move up to somewhat larger towns like Lima, transition through still larger towns like Toledo, reach one of the major markets, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, and maybe then make it to the big time New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. Today, there is no farm team system. You hear voices from major markets on radio stations in small, medium, and large towns, or you hear network-provided programs that appear on stations nationwide. I have no idea where tomorrow's talent is going to come from. And newspapers are going to be the same. The New York Times will survive, so will most of the other newspapers you've heard of. But as current subscribers die, smaller papers are going to find it difficult to pay even a fresh-out-of-college reporter. Because of that, the newspaper farm team system also seems to be in jeopardy. Apparently, we're going to need to destroy the town to save it. Whether smaller newspapers survive or not, and I hope they find a way to, the larger newspapers seem to be poised to succeed. As I was working on my newspaper report, I was somewhat startled to learn that more than half of the U.S. population now owns either a smartphone or a tablet. Granted, most of these people probably have smartphones, but I know a lot of people who have smartphones and tablets. In addition, many have notebook computers, some still have desktops. Computing devices, after all, are just tools. Just like hammers and screwdrivers, one size does not fit all. I've been wrong about this kind of technology twice now. Back in the 1980s, I thought the market for mobile phones would be very limited. Now, in my defense, mobile phones in those days weighed 10 pounds, and they were the size of a briefcase. But then just a few years ago, I looked at Apple's iPad and wondered why anybody would want one of those. As it turned out, a lot of people wanted one of those, and I now have an Android tablet that I use regularly. Smartphones zoomed from 5% market penetration to just shy of 50% in about four years. That's about how fast television gained acceptance in the early 1950s, but far faster than just about any other technology. By comparison, regular telephones didn't reach half the population for nearly 40 years. 
It took 15 years for electricity to reach half our population. The Internet, once it became generally available, hit 50% market penetration in about five years. Tablet ownership hit 10% penetration in three years, exceeded 20% the middle of this year, and it's currently 22% according to some surveys. More companies are offering more products in that market space, so this is an area that's going to increase quickly. Nothing illustrates that more than research done by the Pew Research Center showing that Apple's market-leading iPad is about to dip below 50% market share for the first time. Pew says that fully one-quarter of all U.S. adults now own a tablet computer of some sort. What surprised me, though, is the speed with which Android devices have caught on. And this raises the question about how much market share Microsoft's upcoming tablets will steal from Apple. According to the Pew Report, just over half, or 52%, of tablet owners report owning an iPad, compared with 81% in a survey just a year ago. Android-based devices make up the bulk of the remaining tablet ownership, 48% overall, dominated largely by the Kindle Fire. Two in ten, or 21%, own a Kindle Fire, 8% have a Samsung Galaxy, and the rest have a mix of other models. These numbers match very closely with sales data, which put the Apple iPad at 61% of world sales, Android devices at 31%, and Windows, that would be the Windows Phone, because they don't have a tablet yet, at 4%. It's worth noting that the survey predates the introduction of Google's Nexus 7 and Amazon's Kindle Fire HD. Additionally, the smartphone market, where Apple is a strong player, is increasingly an Android-based phenomenon. Pew's research also notes that brand loyalty is a factor. More than half of the people who own both an iPad and a smartphone have an iPhone. An even larger percentage of people who own an Android tablet and a smartphone have an Android-based phone. This makes a great deal of sense because equivalent operating systems are used on iPads and iPhones, just as equivalent operating systems are used on Android tablets and Android smartphones. So what are we using all those tablets for? When we're on the go, we read email on them or write quick responses. That's a very popular use. I'm starting to receive tablet-based responses to messages even from people who are in the office and sitting right in front of a computer. But another big draw is the ability to check news sites around the world. Another Pew Research project considers the implication of these changes for how we'll receive our news and for how we'll pay for it. Many news organizations have tablet-based applications for their own publications, but these seem to be falling out of favor. The report says that 60% of tablet users select a browser application instead of the publication's application. Just 23% get news through the apps, 16% use both equally. Browser-only readers interact at a more superficial level, though, the report says. App news users and those who use both apps and the browser equally remain in many ways more engaged and deeper news users than those who mostly use their browser, according to the report. Organizations such as the New York Times charge a single monthly fee that allows users to view the publication on smartphones, tablets, and computers using either the publication's application or browser. Those who subscribe to the print-based version of the newspaper have full access to the electronic version. At one time, mobile devices might have been used as replacements for what radio news used to provide, a simple headline service. 
Now, say the researchers, portable devices are being used to read longer articles, too. 73% of adults who consume news on their tablet read in-depth articles at least sometimes, including 19% who do so daily. 61% of smartphone news consumers at least sometimes read longer stories. 11% read them regularly. And that's on a smartphone. What worries publishers and the journalists they pay to report the news is how or whether people will pay for electronic content. Although many journalists would work for free if they had some other source of income, they do have the same needs as the rest of us, providing housing, food, and such for themselves and their families. The Pew Research says that more mobile news users have print-only subscriptions than have digital-only subscriptions. Just 24% of them are considering exchanging their print subscription for a digital one right now, although the report notes that these tend to be younger subscribers, which suggests that the numbers are going to grow. This would seem to parallel telephone usage. Older people maintain wired telephones in addition to their mobile phones, while younger people simply see no need for wired phones. The old model for journalism required that most of the costs be picked up by advertisers, with readers paying only a minimal portion of the production cost. But two of the most productive revenue sources for newspapers have dried up. As I noted, automobile dealers are using websites to market their cars and trucks, and services such as Craigslist have decimated, in the very most literal sense of the word, the want ads. The good news for advertisers is that people notice ads on mobile devices and may even be more likely to click on them than they are to click on other digital ads. Whether the ads are productive is another question, though, and both click-through and conversion rates are relatively low. Click-through refers to a reader's active selection of an ad and following a link. Conversion indicates the consumer has made a purchase. The Pew study notes some research done by AdAge showing that click-through rates on browser-based display ads are less than 1%. In short circuits... White House spokesman Jake Carney told reporters this week that computer security systems installed at the White House detected an attempt to infiltrate computers there, isolated the threat, and removed it. Hurrah! But what about next time? Carney noted that the White House has more than a single network. Some contain classified information and are more hardened against attack, while others contain no secure data. Carney didn't say whether there are any interconnections between the multiple networks, I presume that the secure networks have none. The attack was apparently a spear-phishing attempt in which the attackers pursue a small, select group of people with highly convincing forgeries of what might appear to be legitimate documents from known sources. Carney says such attacks are pretty common at the White House. They're common elsewhere, too. Google believes that the Chinese military personnel conducted an attack against it last year, and the military is under constant attack from various snoops around the world. Congress considered a cybersecurity bill this summer, but couldn't pass it. Many security experts consider electric grids, banks, and other critical businesses and government operations to be at risk. Currently, the Obama administration is working on an executive order that would accomplish some of what Congress was unable to do. The order would establish voluntary cybersecurity standards for businesses, and the Department of Homeland Security would review the processes. 
Executive orders can be eliminated by subsequent administrations, and mandated cybersecurity measures are strongly opposed by business interests. And yes, you heard that right. The very people who have the most to lose if their computer's security is breached are the ones who oppose it the most. Business opposition is what kept Congress from acting this year. A Chinese businessman has settled a fraud suit brought against him by Microsoft, and Microsoft has withdrawn the suit. A domain run by Peng Yang had served as home base for at least one botnet and was implicated in the installation of malware on personal computers around the world. Peng Yang is the owner of 3322.org. He has agreed to work with Chinese security experts and with Microsoft to clean up the mess. The Nighthall botnet was housed at 3322.org, and the domain served at least 500 types of malware, at least according to the suit filed in September by Microsoft. Peng has agreed to reroute any traffic from his domain to a system that will be monitored by Chinese authorities. Peng has denied any wrongdoing. He didn't say it, but perhaps he should have. I didn't do anything wrong, and I won't do it again. It seems like every week Adobe releases something new or updated, and this week is no exception. The latest version of Adobe Acrobat, version 11, is now available as are updates for Lightroom 4, this would take it to version 4.2, and Camera Raw 7.2. Lightroom 4.2 is available as a free download for Lightroom 4 customers, and the Camera Raw plugin is available as a free download for Photoshop CS6 customers. Both are available for Mac and Windows. In part, the frequent updates are necessary because camera manufacturers regularly release new models. The updates also add album support within the Revel Publish service, bring additional RAW file support for 21 new cameras including the Canon EOS 650D and Rebel T4i, the Fujifilm X-E1, and Sony's DSC RX100. They provide tethered capture support for 11 new cameras and preliminary support for Nikon's new D600 camera. In previous programs, I described the updates to Lightroom and Camera Raw, but Acrobat 11 is completely new and became available to me only a few days before the final release. Probably the most useful new feature is the improved editing capability. After I've had the opportunity to work with this version for a while, I'll know more, but Adobe says this version makes PDFs fully editable. That's something a friend of mine has been pressing for since at least 2005. And since 2005, I've been telling him that PDFs are based on the underlying PostScript code, which makes the kinds of features he wants all but impossible. But now the text reflows, just like in a word processor. I'm sure there are limitations to this feature, but I haven't yet had time to work with it enough to know where the boundaries are. So I'll let you know. Acrobat 11 integrates with Adobe's EchoSign service, and this makes it easy to provide a document such as a sales contract online for a customer to sign. This capability extends the existing signing option and simplifies the process. If you have a PDF document and you need a PowerPoint document, try the Adobe Acrobat export feature. 
It adds to existing capabilities to export Word and, as appropriate Excel formats, the ability to create a PowerPoint program. That's not the end of the story for Acrobat, though. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.